morning that we might leave this place different. Uh, Not because they heard from me, but because they met with you, Lord Jesus. And we know that's only capable by your spirit, so spirit, come, attend to the preaching of your word, we ask in Christ's name, amen. This is God's word, Luke 2, 22 through 40. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that is Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then, a, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began, to, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. This is the word of the Lord. So if you've noticed, my sermon title this morning comes from a hit by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers from the 1981 album Heart Promises entitled The Waiting. And the refrain in that song says this, the waiting is the hardest part. Every day you get one more yard, you take it on faith, you take it to the heart. The waiting is the hardest part. The refrain is familiar to me, and I'm sure it's familiar to you, and just recently it's become more familiar as as I've added this song to the dad, my dad's playlist on Amazon.com or Amazon Music. And there's so much truth in this refrain. Waiting is indeed hard. And what highlights hard and waiting is that our lives feel like they're constantly waiting. A couple of weeks ago, or a couple of months ago, we had to purchase a new car, and we had to get tags for our car. And so hearing that the Shelby County Clerk's Office was backed up and the lines were long, I got up one morning around 6 a.m. and went to the office to get my tags, thinking I would be first in line and that would be an efficient time for me. Well, I wasn't the first in line. At 6 o'clock in the morning, I was the 50th in line. 
and waiting three hours, only, and I waited three hours only to be told that I didn't have the right paperwork. I almost lost my witness that morning in front of 50 other people. And I thought to myself, what world do I live in that I have to wait three hours to get tags for my car? Well, it's this world, the world we all inhabit, a world that is full of waiting. We're waiting for school to start back. We're waiting for Amazon to deliver our package. We're waiting for the next election. We're waiting on our kids to go to bed so we can have some peace and quiet. We're waiting for the results of a medical test. We're waiting for an answer from the university we, university we apply to. We're waiting for our delivery date. We're waiting to hear back from our employer to see if we got the new position. We're waiting for the next episode of Yellowstone or the crown to drop. We're waiting for the interest rates to go down. We're waiting on our floors and our walls to be fixed because of busted pipes. We're waiting for the foursome to putt and get off the green. We're waiting on our grades to be published. We're waiting to get our car back from the mechanic. We're waiting for Jaws 1s to come out. We're waiting to hear where we match residency. We're waiting to hear back from the bank about a loan. And all of us are waiting for Nick Saban to retire. <laughs> it almost feels like we're all constantly waiting. And Tom Petty's song is so true. Waiting is hard. But why is it hard? Why is it hard for us to wait? And why, when we wait, do we become so anxious and angry? Well, I think for two reasons. Because waiting reminds us that we're powerless. It reminds us of our dependency. We can't do for ourselves what we need to be done. We can't have what we want when we want it and where we want it. We don't possess the power to bring about our desires, our longings, and our hopes. But secondly, waiting represents loss. A loss of time. A loss of freedom. Which is, again, a reminder that we are not autonomous. We are part of a communal system called the world. And as much as you and I dislike it, we are not the center of it. And both of these reasons underscore the main reason why we hate waiting. And why waiting is so hard for us. And that is this, that we are not God. I am not God, and you are not God. We hate to wait because it's a reminder that you're not in control of your life, that you're not God. And all this waiting at times in my life and in your life can leave us jaded and cynical, disillusioned. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about this morning. You're exhausted, you're worn out from waiting, you're overwhelmed by it, and you just want to give up, you're done. Some of you are waiting for someone to come along and pursue you or find somebody that you can pursue to marry you and it just hasn't happened. You're tired, you're waiting, and you're lonely, and you just want to give up. Some of you have been waiting for a spouse to deal with their sobriety. Their addiction is ruining your marriage and your life, and you're waiting for them to take it seriously, and yet it's not coming, and you're jaded, and you're worn out, and you just want to give up. Some of you are waiting for the Lord to bring back a wandering child, and you're tired of praying and waiting as your child continues to wander and you pray day in and day out and he just or she has just not come back to the Lord. And you think to yourself, what's the point? Why am I praying? I'm tired of waiting, God. 
and become cynical and disillusioned and jaded at times. And we all have stories of waiting. But the one story that rings true for all of us is that we're all waiting for Jesus to return. At the very heart of our faith is that our God promised to return and to get us. He promises to invade this world, this sad world again, and to come back and make all things new. And we're still waiting. John 14 tells us, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. God has promised to come back and to get us. And yet he has not returned. And so we wait. We wait. This is the first, uh, first Lord's Day of 2023. And we're still waiting for our God to return. To pierce this dark world. And we feel it. We feel the anxiety. The trouble. The acuteness of the devil's schemes in our lives. And we're worn out. And we're weary. And maybe some of us are hopeless. And thinking, is it ever going to happen? Well, in our passage, we had two people that are waiting. Waiting for the Messiah to come. And I want to look at those two people this morning. And I want to look at what were they waiting for? What were they waiting for? And what did they testify to? Those are my two points this morning. What were they waiting for? And what did they testify to? Well, the first person I want to look at is this person, Simeon. Verse 25 says that Simeon was a righteous and devout man. Meaning that Simeon was a man of God, a God, a man that submitted himself to God's law, lived under God's commandments. He loved God's word. Verse 29 alludes to, an accord, it says, according to God's word. His life was based on God's word and he lived up under it. Not only was he religious and devout, but he had the spirit upon him. The scripture says the spirit was with him and upon him. And revealed to him that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. Now we don't know how old Simeon was in this passage, but the way it reads, it makes it think, makes the reader think that he's actually older. That death is closer to him than he thinks. And this prophecy, this promise that he receives from the Holy Spirit does nothing but direct his heart toward the promise that God has given to him. That he will not die until he sees the Messiah, the Lord's Christ. And you can see how that would orient his life. How he'd be longing, knowing that death is coming soon. But, the God, but his God promised him through the Spirit that he would not die until he sees the Lord's Messiah. And what is he specifically waiting for, though? Well, verse 25 tells us he's waiting on the consolation of Israel. What is that? Well, it's a reference to Isaiah's prophecy out of, out of Isaiah excuse me, 40, verse 1 and Isaiah 57, concerning the coming Messiah the anointed one, the promised one, who would come and bring comfort and healing. He would speak tenderly to Israel and pardon them of all their sins. His presence would be comforting. He would ease their mourning and their grief by causing all their warfare and all their hardships to cease. Which makes us think that Simeon in this passage is experiencing the hardships of life. He's an older man living in a culture that's oppressed, that's occup they're occupied by the Romans. And no doubt he knows of the oppression and the hardships. And so he's longing for the consolation of Israel. For God's promised one to come back and set up his kingdom. 
a kingdom that wins and pushes back the darkness in his life and the life of Israel. But what is he ultimately waiting for? What does all this point toward? Well, we see it in verse 29. The Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. What I believe Simeon is ultimately waiting for is shalom. He's waiting for the peace of God to invade his existence. And not simply to do away with all the conflict and the pain, but to make things right again. To set up a kingdom of wholeness, of harmony, of completeness. That is what Simeon is waiting for. That is what the Messiah represents for him. This sense of completeness and wholeness. Of togetherness. Of peace. And he's longing for it. And as God has promised him. Promised him. That he will not die until he sees the one that actually will bring it. And so he's clinging to that promise. This morning I ask you, what are you waiting for? We live in a city that is broken. We live in a city that if you turn on the news is constantly plagued by crime, poverty, injustices, gun violence. And we live in this city and we're afraid and we're overwhelmed by it. What are you waiting for? We live in a city, in a world. So our world is full of division and, and debt. Tyrants start wars against other nations. This is our world. What are you waiting for? We live in our bodies that are broken, that feel the ache of life, our shoulders, our knees, our hearts. We take medication to stay alive. What are you waiting for? Simeon was waiting for the shalom, the peace, the fullness of God to come. Are you waiting for that this morning? But he wasn't the only one that was waiting. We see a second person waiting in this passage. And it's Anna in verse 36. It tells us that she was a prophetess. She's one of a handful of, of women that proclaim the word of God and pronounce the word of God. And she has identity markers attached to her. That she was a daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, meaning that she was a prophet of Israel. And most likely because she was a prophet of Israel and she was a tribe of Asher, she was a wealthy person that lived around the temple, that proclaimed the word of God. Not only was she a prophetess, but she was a widow. And she was a widow for a long time. The scripture tells us, depending on whenever she uh, got married, usually women at this time got married anyway from age 13 to 20. And depending on how you do the math, she would have been a widow from anywhere from 57 to 64 years. She didn't have a husband to watch after her, to provide for her, to protect her. She didn't have a companion to love or to be with, to serve her. She's a woman that lives her life close to the temple of God. That's all alone. And she too was righteous. We see that in her actions. That she goes to the temple day in and day out, fasting and praying. But what is she waiting for? 
Well, there's some clues in this passage that tell us what she's waiting for. First, it tells us that she's, tells us that she's constantly praying. And that goes along with her being a prophet, and that makes complete sense. But it also says that she's fasting constantly. Every day she goes to the temple to pray and to fast. Well, if you know anything about fasting, fasting in the Old Testament, there are many reasons to fast, but the two major reasons that people would fast would be mourning over their sin and leaning into the dependence of God, leaning into God providing for them. And so here is Anna, day in and day out, going to the temple, fasting and praying, mourning her sin, mourning who she is, looking to God to take care of her and to provide for her. And she's at the temple every day, day and night, it says. And what happens at the temple but sacrifices? The Levites would constantly be sacrificing animals Blood would be everywhere, all over the space. Why? For the atonement of sins. Atoning for Israel's sins. And she's around that constantly. And thirdly, I don't think it's a coincidence that when she sees the baby Jesus, she immediately says, the scripture says, she immediately gives thanks. Now that word is the only time it's used in the New Testament. And yes, it can be translated to give thanks, but the root of that word is to confess, to acknowledge fully, to formally formally admit. And what does she say when she sees Jesus? What does she say? The redemption of Israel, the redemption, excuse me, of Jerusalem has come. What is Anna, sorry, what is Anna waiting for? I think she's waiting for a complete forgiveness. She attends the temple every day. Imagine that. Seeing the sacrifices, seeing the blood. She's fasting every day. And then what does she see? She sees Jesus. And what does she say? There. There is the redemption of Jerusalem. There is the ransom that is to be paid. Her whole life has been around blood burnt offerings. Can you imagine what that would smell like, what that would feel like? And then the baby Jesus, 40 days old, comes into the temple and she says, there, there is my payment. There is my forgiveness. And she proclaims that loud and to everybody that she can talk to. Some of you this morning need to hear that. You come into this sanctuary And you don't feel right inside. Something is amiss. You know you're here because you're supposed to do it. Maybe it's the first uh, Lord's Day, the first day to come and worship in this new year. And something doesn't feel right inside of you. And you can't figure it out. But you know you should be here. I'm not the Holy Spirit, but I'm going to guess it's because you need to be forgiven. The Spirit is convicting you of your sin. And you need to hear that there's forgiveness. You come in here and you feel dirty and unclean. And you need to know that there's forgiveness. And that's what Anna longed for. That's what she was looking for. That's what she was waiting for. What are you waiting for? 
Now Simeon is waiting for God's peace, his shalom. Anna is waiting for the forgiveness of God. And why are they waiting for these things? Because they're powerless to bring them about. They can't, Anna, Anna can't forgive herself. Simeon can't bring about peace in his own life. He needs somebody else to do it. Which leads us to our second point. Which is this. What are they testifying to? What does Anna and Simeon testify to? To understand this, we need to look back to Luke chapter 1. Luke here is writing an argument. Luke chapter 1, verse 3, says this, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely, closely for some time past, to write an orderly account of you, for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke, here in his gospel, is making an argument about who Jesus is. In the very beginning, he has an argument that this child, Jesus, is the Messiah, is the anointed one. And he closes out this argument, the closing argument he has, are these two witnesses, Simeon and Anna. And they testify to something. And what are they testifying to? Well, first, Simeon testifies that this child is a sign. Verse 34, behold, this child is appointed for the rise and fall of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed What is that sign? Well, we learn that from Isaiah chapter 7. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And and you shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. What does Simeon testify to? What does he witness to as he sees this child? That this child that he takes in his arms and sings about is God himself. The creator of the universe, the cause of the great flood, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the voice in the burning bush, the God who made a mockery of Pharaoh and rescued his people from slavery, the lawgiver from Mount Sinai, the greater king of David, the great shepherd of the sheep, the great I am, is resting in the arms of Simeon. Simeon bears witness as a prophet, as a righteous man, that this baby, this 40-year-old child, this 40-year-old infant, is God himself. The unbreakable God has become breakable, and he holds God himself in his arms as a sign, as a fulfillment of what God told his people, that he would come near, Emmanuel would come. And here, Simeon celebrates that and sings to that. And testifies to it. That this isn't a child like every other Israelite child. This is the Messiah. The one that has come to rescue us. To redeem us. To pay our debt. And this child comes to separate. Look at verse 33. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and a sign that is opposed. Jesus comes as the Messiah and he's going to separate the righteous from the unrighteous, those that are in the kingdom and those that are not. And he's going to establish his kingdom that is not a kingdom of law and oppression and a control, but a kingdom of mercy and kindness and grace. And as he does this, he will be opposed. He'll be mocked, slandered, lied about ultimately beaten and killed. 
What is Simeon testifying to? That this is the rescue of God. In this baby. In this 40-day-old child. But he also uh, testifies to something else. The baby Jesus is not simply a sign, but he's the salvation of God's people. Look at verse 10. For my eyes have seen your salvation. As he holds Jesus in his arms, he sings over him. Forty days old. This little boy is the salvation of God's people. The salvation that has been promised way back into Genesis chapter 3. Where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between our, our offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that gospel message has been unpacked for centuries, describing who this person would be. And then this person comes. And the person's name is Jesus. And Simeon knows that. And Simeon is singing of that reality. And what is this salvation that this little child is bringing? Well, there's one more person in this passage that's waiting. And that person is Mary. If you look at verse 22, it says this, And when the time came for their purification. What is that about? Well, in Levitical law, a woman that had just given birth was considered unclean. Leviticus 12 says this, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. And on the eighth day, the flesh of her foreskin, his foreskin, foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she, she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into, come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. And when the days of your purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a burnt or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for, her, for who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Mary, for 40 days, is considered unclean. There's something wrong with her. Nobody should be around her. They won't come visit her to see her and her child. They won't hug her or touch her. As she recovers from giving birth, she's all alone. She can't touch anybody. She can't go to worship. She can't be comforted. She's completely isolated and separated. Why? Because she's unclean. She spent 40 days not going to the temple. And those 40 days, she's longing what? to be purified, to offer sacrifices so that she can be clean again, that she can be welcomed back into the community community of God's people. And what does it take? It takes sacrifices. And this little turtle dove and pigeons represent a sacrifice that would welcome her back into a right relationship with God's people and a right relationship with him. 
When Simeon says, his eyes have seen the salvation, he is saying the ultimate cleanser has come. The ultimate purifier is here. The one that can only forgive.